Well, hey, guys, uh, I am about to head into one of the worst snowstorms of the season so far. They're <laughs> talking about two feet of snow and, and Rosemary, that's like two thirds of a meter of snow. So I can put it in metric terms for you. <laughs> well, you two are sitting in warm, comfortable places. And Rosemary, you're probably even near the ocean. Yeah, that's right. It is unseasonably cold, though. <laughs> oh, man, I'm in shorts and I'm in shorts and flip flops. Houston, Texas is 74 degrees today. I guess uh, some people can live in the lap of luxury and us hardy Nor- New Englanders will just suffer through the winter like we always do. <laughs> well, I mean, at least, well, yeah, not a big skier, unfortunately. I've seen too many people blow at their knees, hips, elbows, break their thumbs. So it's getting older, I, man. I, I try to avoid that. Well, this is this is true. Old or smart, one or the other. Comes, it comes with one of the same. <laughs> we'll stick with one smart. of the same, yeah. <laughs> so there's a lot going on this week in renewable energy news, particularly in wind. But we want to start by talking about the Lawrence Livermore fusion effort. And Rosemary and I go back and forth about how great America is or how long this is going to take. Rosemary's probably right. I'll, I'll grant her that. But uh, it, it's a good discussion. And then uh, we talk uh, about the Siemens Gamesa opening a factory over in Iowa, one they had mothballed for a while, so it's good to see that one kick back open again. Okay. Um, we're going to talk about a Vestas order that's been announced for southern Sweden, and the interesting part of that is that it comes with a 35-year service agreement. And then as we all love innovation, and we're sticking with Vestas again, we're going to talk about Blade Robots, a company that they started out of their, their uh, venture capital fund and are now uh, releasing to the market. So you'll be seeing some more, more robots climbing blades, replacing uh, technicians possibly. I'm Alan Hall, president of WeatherGuard Lightning Tech, and I'm here with Australian renewables guru, Rosemary Barnes, and my good friend from Wind Power Lab, Joel Saxon. And this is the Uptime Wind Energy Podcast. The big news of the week is Lawrence Livermore National Laboratory's National Ignition Facility created fusion where they had more energy out than energy in. And I think that's a kind of a unique measure, but okay. Uh, And I did a little research on it because it's all the news in the U.S. is talking about this. This is not that – in 2013, they did a fusion experiment where the energy released exceeded the amount of energy uh, being absorbed by the fuel. So that was nine years ago. So now it's kind of flipped where the energy in uh, is less than the energy out. So they have made some improvements on whatever they're doing, but it's been nine years to, to do that. So the, the latest ex, uh, experiment, they used 192 layers lasers, which is the general setup. So they have 192 lasers pointed to a 10 millimeter long, which 10 millimeters is about half an inch long, uh, whole ROM. H-O-H-L-R-A-U-M for those uh, checking at home. You can Google that. There's a little tiny cylinder, all right? It's a little tiny cylinder. And inside of there, they put a pellet full of the good, the good stuff, a fuel pellet. And then they take that whole ROM and they put it in a cooling sleeve and drive it down to 18 degrees Kelvin. 
And Rosemary, 18 degrees Kelvin is about the temperature in Wisconsin right now. <laughs> <laughs> 340 degrees minus Celsius or so. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So what they do is they take those 192 lasers in this big spherical arrangement, or mostly spherical arrangement, and they shoot those lasers into the horum. And when it, the lasers hit the walls of that horum, it creates x-rays, and those x-rays are so massive, they actually compress the fuel pellet, and that creates fusion. So they, they put two megajoules into the laser energy, and out came three megajoules of energy. But the energy was really, really short in duration. I, I think I heard uh, microseconds, maybe even shorter than that, what this whole event was. So it's a great thing, right? It's a, it's a start that more energy out than energy in is we're practically there to the fusion future, right? <laughs> right. I actually, I read a tweet from um, one of my YouTube friends, Climate Adam. I don't know if you guys watch their, their channel. I did a, a collaboration one time, but they say that, um, yeah, so this experiment for fusion energy being energy positive, it's kind of, Yes, it is in the same way that a restaurant making slightly more money than the cost of its raw ingredients is making a profit. It's like the amount of energy absorbed was less than the amount of energy released, but it's not the amount of energy that you had to put into the process to, um, you know, to get that energy out. Overall, we're still definitely ne uh, energy negative. And I think, I don't know, my summation of, of this advance is that it's super, super, super cool science and it's got absolutely nothing to do with the current energy transition it it might whoa. be the next it might whoa, be the whoa. next energy whoa, transition whoa, whoa. in 2100 or something but people who are saying that <laughs> you think people who are saying off? that this is uh come on i wouldn't be surprised uh, let, me, let me say between 2060 and 2100 i reckon that's when when it will be commercialized wow. okay well, I, I, so as a linkedin post it said yeah, so the LinkedIn post I said was a poll and it said, is this going to change in, you know, the way we produce energy in 10 years, 20 years or not in my lifetime? So you're siding on the not, not in my lifetime yeah. rather than 10 or 20 years. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I've seen people saying um, this is 10 years away from commercialization now. And I don't think that any of the people really involved are saying that. But it is what I see a lot of um, people quoted by journalists saying. And I mean, the technologies that I look at. 10 years away from commercialization means all the cool science is well and truly settled and all the cool engineering is well and tru truly settled. It's the boring engineering that takes 10 years at the end. And we're we're not up to the boring engineering part of fusion yet. There's still science and there is a whole bunch of engineering, like cutting edge engineering, things that don't exist yet. Lasers need to become so much more efficient just, you know, by lots and lots and lots of times. And we've been you know, we've been trying to make lasers efficient for a long time. So it's not like a breakthrough is going to happen in a couple of years with um, with that. And then there's a lot of materials, science, materials, engineering. It will be really cool to to watch and follow. But I don't know if you're banking on this for your, you know, energy transition plans to save uh, save us from climate change, then I think it's kind of like somebody whose career plan, retirement plan was to stop going to work and just buy a lot of a lot of lottery, lottery tickets or, you know, I don't know, get spend a lot of time in casinos. It's it so, might have a really good payoff, but it is almost certainly not going to. So our jobs are safe. 
Saying? Yeah, for the amount of time that you probably want to be working, uh, I would I would say that <laughs> that you're safe. And if not, I'm sure, sure there'll be I don't know. a new fusion. In- the first powered flight was 1903. The the first uh, breaking of the sound barrier was 1947. So it's 44 odd years, right? And for the first five or six years of flight, it was just two guys in in Ohio. Uh, so let's say it was 35 years from real flight to sound barrier. And it was another 20-ish years from the breaking the sound barrier to we landed on the moon. So you're telling me this is going to take longer than... I believe it already has. I mean, when when was the first Fusion announcement? When was Fusion first 10 years away from commercialization? It had to be in the 70s or something, right? I mean, it's... Um, it's no. Well... <laughs> People have been saying, this is, this is America, I've been making okay, the joke so that Fusion is, is 10 years away since I was in university. So it's been at least 20 years that Fusion's been 10 years away. <laughs> and it wasn't you then. Okay, wait, wait, wait. So Amer- America has had created Fusion energy in the past, right? When we did it back in the late 60s, no, maybe in the late 50s, right? So the hydrogen bomb is a Fusion energy release that's what it is right it's a fission bomb that, that hits a makes a fusion bomb that's a H, that's a hydrogen bomb right joel am i right about but it, that i think you're wrong i think it's actually the, that we've never actually created a fusion bomb only a fission bomb no 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 rosemary as your as our independent judge in this a fusion bomb is an h-bomb it's a hydrogen bomb uh, wait right? here you go here, I'm, I just, I'm not going to be this. this is a this is a quote oh, from wikipedia sorry. This is a quote from Wikipedia, and this may not be right or wrong, but it says, despite the many millions of dollars spent by the U.S. between 1952 and 1992 to produce a pure fusion weapon, no measurable success was ever achieved. Oh, true. Oh, that's pure fusion, pure, no. pure fusion, right. Yeah, yeah. Right. So we, we use fission to get to fusion. Ah, okay. Am, so, Alan, I, Alan I, you're correct. You're correct. All current thermonuclear weapons use a fission bomb as its first stage to create the high temperatures and pressures necessary to start a fusion reaction between uh, deuterium and tritium in a second stage. Okay. And I've also brought up Wikipedia because that's the the level of (laughs) research. That's where we're at. And I see that research into fusion power has been going on since the 1940s. So we're over 80 years so far of probably people saying that we're 10 years away from from this thing or a reality. Um, And so I don't think it's so – we've made a lot of – progress and like i said i think it's so so cool what they what they've done what they continue to do but it does feel sort of arbitrary this announcement you know it's been getting gradually gradually more efficient and now they've passed some threshold that allows their pr department to to be able to claim it's energy positive you know if you (laughs) they need that funding that funding to keep going i mean come on i bet that there's some sort of um funding renewal coming up um it's not to say that it's not yeah. awesome, but it's yeah, it's not it's not ten years away from. Say, say it's awesome. Why can't we say, say it's awesome, awesome Rosemary? That, just say it's awesome. Know, if you it's want to fine. put your money okay. on fusion, then I would do it with the giant free fusion reactor in the sky in the form of solar power, um, and you know, slightly less directly the <laughs> you know is. the heating and cooling of the planet All that right, causes Elon. wind and you know wind energy. They're both they're both fusion if you trace it back far enough. Nearly everything is actually. There you go. The, the, the uh, root cause. True. The root cause is fusion. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's all fusion. Well, here's I'll throw another set of dates at you. The the first uh, controlled fission 
experiment was in Chicago, at least in the U.S. in Chicago, at the University of Chicago underneath the football stadium. Uh, and that was like 1936, 7, 8, somewhere in there. And the first fission generator, well, we, had, we built a nuclear sub in like uh, 1955, somewhere like that. So it, it wasn't really 20 years from uh, carbon blocks and some fissionable material underneath the football stadium to we're under the water with a submarine. Some America. problems are harder than others. That. That would, would be <laughs> my good. response to that. Fusion's a hard problem. Remember that. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I, okay. All right. I, no, I'm gonna I'm gonna give this round to Rosemary, but <laughs> round two. Remember, we're the comeback kids. America may be able to pull this one off. We'll see. Wasn't, fi- oh, wasn't uh, the original Fission designed by the French? I don't know. It's probably, probably not in the American version of Wikipedia. Well, <laughs> probably need a VPN to access that information to admit that the hey, we, the French we, VPN we, something like we, that. We, we also won the Vietnam War, just so we're clear. We also created Wikipedia and the internet yeah. and Google yeah, yeah. and Facebook, there you go. which Rosemary's not part yeah, of. I wouldn't but be yes, true. we did I'm all that stuff too. Proud of the too. Facebook part of it, but... <laughs> Zuckerberg's listening. Shh, be quiet. All right. So uh, I, I think we'll just set this one aside for now, and uh, we'll come back in six months to a year when they've created Fusion and replay it. I think that's what we'll do. Siemens Gamesa Renewable Energy in Fort Madison, Iowa, is bringing the workers back. And the company had laid off about 170 workers uh, in May, and then I think another 120 or so let go in February. So they've had layoffs basically to close that factory because they didn't have any work but they got a new lease on life the company is uh order order book is is increased and they're saying the ira bill in america is helping the wind turbine industry get back on its feet so they're bringing people back to the factory and they're going to open two production lines that will be operational joel this year 2022 come on on. i know right that's two weeks away and it's christmas I know. <laughs> well, maybe maybe you can earn a couple weeks' salary before the end of the year. That wouldn't be so yeah, bad. Maybe. Uh, yeah, take it. The the two production lines are going to produce uh, new and larger uh, wind turbine blades than what they had been making, which I think everybody's doing at this point. So that's a good mm-hmm. sign, right? Because Siemens Gamesa had throttled down this plant in Iowa, and they had a sister plant in Kansas, and both of them were had really dropped off dramatically in terms of the amount of work. And so they were laying off people. So it looks like they're bringing them back. So they must, I, I, do you think they started this plan to bring the factory back right after that IRA bill was signed? You think that them next morning they were like, Hey guys, should we get this Fort Madison thing going again? Siemens Gamesa is really good with handling money or seems to be. Uh, and I would have be hard pressed. to think they didn't have a significant order book in place before they flip the switchbacks on at the, at the factory. Okay. Because they could have offloaded like GE did to TPI. Yeah. I would, I've, I've got to say that there's got to, that has to be some, that thing has to play in it somehow. The other side, I guess that the mm. question I have is if they're going to get this thing going this fast, when we talked about this last summer and last winter, uh, it was like complete mothball, shut the factory down. They must, must right. not have mothballed it that hard. They must've kind of just said, Hey, 
let's put this thing up for a year or something because I would think that it would take <laughs> if a, if something sat idle for a year a factory I think it'd take longer than a week or two to get it back going. Well, the article oh, that I, I would agree that with I read this. called it hibernation, not mothballing. So I guess hibernation kind of implies that you know you're going okay. to be waking up in a few months. That's okay. my take on it. <laughs> yeah. I, I think that it's, yeah, well, that's the, that, that the IRA bill is definitely, I think, gonna gonna make a resurgence in uh, American manufacturing because you can see people panicking in in Europe. The EU um, are quite worried that they're going to lose a lot of their manufacturers are going to relocate to the US, and I know that they're scrambling to see how they could even counter it because I, I think it's quite challenging for the EU to make any um, kind of coordinated tax measures since that's, that's left up to each member state and, they, you know, they've got to change what they want, but then yeah. they're also constrained within the it's, EU by not being able to have a policy um, that uh, gives their country an advantage compared in trade compared to the other member countries. So it's like the tax measures are after each state, but then they can't, and one state can't choose to, um, <laughs> can't choose to actually make anything significant, a significant incentive for manufacturing in their um, in their country because it would disadvantage but, the other countries. So it's challenging for them. But I mean, in a tax benefit or some kind of policy benefit to a manufacturing facility in Europe or elsewhere in the world would have to be extreme to be able to fight with the we don't have to put these things on boats we don't have to go through two harbors we just put them on trucks from the factory and drive them 100 miles down the road and put them in, up in iowa because in iowa i mean everybody knows how prolific the wind energy situation is in iowa they're developing and developing and developing right that whole that whole corridor iowa minnesota south dakota there's within 500 miles of that factory a day's a day's heavy truck drive from that factory there's probably forty thousand turbines yeah. And they're and they're just I don't increasing. Know. I mean, so it'd have to be extreme to be building able to a lot of wind farms in Australia and have been for a while and don't make any major components here. We get them from India or, or China primarily. Yeah, but that if, if if they were if your blades were built in uh, outside of Canberra versus in India, that even with the labor differences, I would imagine that they would be a lot cheaper. But, so why don't why aren't we to, building them in Australia then? Up. I mean, I, I just think that the <laughs> Yeah. It, it has occurred to people yeah. that nobody that, wants to take the risk. They could build a, a factory in yeah, Australia, risk. and investors did have have one at some point. I can't remember exactly what they were making, but but some stuff, um, and they closed it. Uh, mm-hmm. So, yeah, I think that it's. Um, I mean, that was quite a while ago, and we wouldn't have been building as many wind farms back then. So it might be partly part yeah. of been partly have been a pipeline problem, but. For sure, now everyone wants to build as many uh, wind farms as they can get turbines for. As um, you know, the, we we would be building more faster if the supply chain was um, you know available to do that. So, I think there's heaps yeah. of pull yeah. for yeah. manufacturing in Australia, and it hasn't happened yet. Although we did talk about last time how um, at least Queensland, one of the states in Australia, has plans to bring manufacturing here. Um, yeah, I think. Uh, I think the, you know, proof of the pudding's in the eating and I think that it's showing that incentives do do matter and I, I think yeah. it's going to make a difference. For, I mean, it was the whole point of the bill was to get manufacturing happening in, in America, right? To get stuff yeah. moving. Yeah, oh, get it, it all moving. Mm-hmm. Uh, one, of, one, of the, one of the piece of quantitative data that I don't, I don't think we'll ever get, but I would, I would be very interested to see how many people of the hundred or three 292 that were laid off over the last year how many of them are going to be back 
how many of them found other jobs or or whatnot, or how much mm-hmm. of that knowledge has been retained in that factory. Because uh, if you had to go right back to being at 300 people again and retraining every single one of them from scratch, I might not want to be the first wind turbine taking a delivery of Siemens Gamesa blades <laughs> next summer. <laughs> I might want to wait to get mine until the fall. Yeah. Well, we're, everybody's having a hard time bringing people back to, to factories and jobs. That's a nationwide problem in the United States. So why would Siemens Gamesa be different than anybody else? Probably yeah. not. It's probably going to be a little difficult. Probably a two thirds will come back. The other third maybe won't. That, that will be I trouble. A, and yeah. Joel, I think you raise a good point about. Go ahead. I think it's a problem um, with the that the industry is quite used to actually employee churn um, and you know opening opening factories in places that have never had a, you know wind turbine manufacturing before. So you know in that case they they bring some people from other factories to get it started and train up the local workforce. But it is also a problem in some parts of the US and in some parts of Europe at least. I don't know probably other places where they get people in, train them and only keep them, you know, on average for, um, you know, less than a year. And so then they are having a problem with uh, having to train up new people constantly. And if you're not very carefully managing your shifts and you end up with a, you know, a whole team that's brand new, then you do end up with quality problems. And it is something that you do see from time to time popping up, I think, for all the manufacturers. That's that's an issue. Um, so I guess that this will be, you know, another example of that. And no doubt they've faced it before and will implement some of the same solutions. It definitely would be easier if you could just keep your staff on and, you know, uh, have them know what to do. <laughs> yeah, keep the thing rolling. Blades around the clock, around the year. Lightning is an act of God, but lightning damage is not. Actually, it's very predictable and very preventable. Strike Tape is a lightning protection system upgrade for wind turbines made by WeatherGuard. It dramatically improves the effectiveness of the factory LPS so you can stop worrying about lightning damage. Visit weatherguardwind.com to learn more, read a case study, and schedule a call today. Vestas has received a 59 megawatt order to uh, power an undisclosed project in southern Sweden. Sweden is not that big, so it can't be undisclosed that long. Come on, guys. Uh, It includes an order for 13 V150 4.5 megawatt turbines at a hub height at 105 meters, so pretty tall. Uh, One of the key features of this deal is it includes uh, a 35-year active output management 5,000 service agreement which is there to optimize the performance of the farm. The whole thing's supposed to kick off uh, second quarter of 2024 and finish in the third quarter of 2024. It's only 13 turbines. It won't take that long. So that if, if you're not familiar with Vestas, Vestas offers a variety of um, active output management agreements from AOM 1000 to 5000, and each one has a slightly different package of goodies inside of it. So the AOM 5000 is a full scope contract, which means, quote unquote, there'll be no unseen or unbudgeted maintenance costs for items covered by the agreement. That's interesting. And I've seen this a couple of times. I think, Rosemary, you pointed out, too, that you had seen this AOM 5000 pop up in uh, sales. You want to describe what that means exactly? Yeah, well, I um, I looked up the... PDF, I guess it's their sales brochure to see what was contained in the agreement. Um, it's because, a topic we've talked about on the 
the podcast, I think, a little bit, and it's something that I'm thinking about a lot in my day-to-day work is these really long-term service agreements, and in this case, 35 years. I mean, I haven't seen one longer than that, um, it, you know. It, it's still, if you read the, the literature, people are yeah, still saying wind farms last for 20 years, um, and I think that that's increasingly become, uh, I don't know if that's ever the case anymore. Um, it's crazy to think, you know, what's the world going to be like in, in 2035? We'll all have, you know, our, our portable fusion reactors by then, no doubt. And <laughs> 2057. Yeah. It's, um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> who, who knows what the world will look crazy. like? Go but Vestas is, you know, backing up their claim that their wind turbines are going to last that long with, you know, by providing the service guarantee. I mean, I guess that is as good as, you know, how long the company itself lasts, lasts for. I mean, even that, I mean, right. even that says something. But one thing that I thought was interesting in, um, yeah, so this, their brochure for this um, service agreement was that they also have um, an, like an uptime, uh, no, an upside uh sharing arrangement. So there is an incentive for not just ensuring that a minimum um, a minimum threshold is met, that's, you know, normal energy based or, um, you know, some other basis of making an availability performance guarantee. But um, and yeah, and if it's not met, then liquidated damages are paid to cover the lost production. But there's also upside sharing so that there is an incentive for investors to perform beyond the threshold. Um, and I noted that that is initially a shorter term, I think 10 years, and it can be renewed, um, I, I guess, depending on how things go. But I think that that, I don't know how common these are, certainly most of the, the, wind, um, the wind farm owners that I'm working with don't have those kinds of clauses because, yeah, we're... We're seeing a lot of these service agreements where, you know, the, the service provider, the OEM, has an incentive to meet the availability guarantee, you know, um, it's 98% or whatever. But if they already, you know, they're getting close to the end of the year and they know that they're going to exceed it, there's actually no reason for them to even bother continuing to run the the turbines for that last uh, week or two of the, the year. I mean, I'm sure they will, but you can imagine that there isn't the incentive for them to be like super proactive with their, their maintenance and really make sure that they are, um, you know, doing maintenance at a time that's the most financially beneficial for the the project overall avoiding you know high high generation days and high price is, days and, and that sort of thing so i wonder if we're going to see this is that what that means i mean it's it, well it's it sounds like a profit sharing thing like if we make this the turbines produce super good amounts of power i don't know how you would describe it it's more than some threshold right if you like to have more power than what we guarantee as a minimum we'll do that but we have to split the proceeds. When I think we do it's it. necessary for it to be like that. Like, it sounds greedy, but I think it's necessary for them to have like a decent incentive to actually want to do it. Because when you just have the like baseline minimum, you go beyond below this, and you have to pay as compensation. It only gives you the incentive to to do the, the absolute minimum. Right. Whereas this way, they'll make more money if um, everyone will make more money if it if it performs better. Yeah, but what about pride in your job and pride in your product? Why wouldn't you want to maximize that all the time? I'm I'm missing that. If if I had control over that, why I wouldn't make it work as well you might as it could. You might you might have. I, I think that's what it implies on the negative on side. And so you're not putting any energy into this wind farm that's never going to you know fall below its um, guarantee. You're, you're worried about the wind well, farm. There's a, that's there's not a, gonna there's a risk. 
there's a risk yeah. versus reward sure. thing there too, right? So like Rosemary was saying before, if you had to meet X level and you met it by December 1st, well, as Vesta is going into the next year, it might be smart to shut that wind farm down for a year because now you're saving on oil changes, all these different things, all these different maintenance issues that could rear their head over the year or that month that you don't you don't benefit from, but you might Hmm. Lose or from. you might choose to get ahead on, right? it's like, on scheduled it's like maintenance, just, even right. if it's, you know, really high power prices that, that month. So, you know, they should be generating as much as possible to make as much money as possible. But their um, incentive is structured in a way that that doesn't matter. They might, yeah, bring forward maintenance so that they're doubly sure that they're going to, you know, yeah. need it next year. So I'll give you a – uh, oh, go ahead, Alan. Well, I, I'm just asking – would Vestas shut down your turbines when it's producing power and just say, hey, look, this is part of the deal. We get to do the maintenance when we feel I like it. And you, the power producer, don't have any say in it. It's, I that's don't, I don't think so, but I'll give you an example um, without <laughs> without trying to get into too many specifics that I can't share. But say you've got a serial defect in um, all of the blades in, in your wind farm, um, or, you know, it's in some of them, not in mm. others. So you might choose to be more proactive if you were on the hook for, you know, say there's, there might, there's a one in 10 chance that another blade in the wind farm might, um, might catastrophically break and need to be replaced, but you don't have a spare blade. It's probably going to take months, maybe up to a year to replace that blade. Um, if you are, if you're not really worried about the overall performance of the wind farm, you might say that's that's fine, whatever. You know, we'll just we'll just wait for that blade to show up. Whereas mm. if you are more <laughs> a bit more proactive, you might be able to say, okay, we're going to do some um, some preventative maintenance. We're going to be uh, doing a lot more checks, a lot more drone inspections. We're going to be I don't know monitoring the inside of the blades. You know, you can be more proactive to be more sure that you're not going to end up in a situation with a catastrophic blade failure and having to wait a year for a replacement blade. Um, that's the kind yeah. of situation that I see. Uh, I mean, not that I've ever seen it come to that where someone's left waiting for a year because the service provider just didn't feel like doing the, uh, um, yeah, preventative maintenance or inspection, you know, a, a aggressive <laughs> inspection campaign. Um, but I do... Very often I'm, I'm looking at a, at a serial defect and if the recommendation was up to me for how much they should be inspecting, um, it's never, you know, the inspection protocol that they're following is always far more relaxed than what I would want to do if it was my wind farm and I was worried about how much money it was going to make. Mm. So I, I think I think it's a difference. Joel, the 30, the, yeah. Joel, the the thirty five year piece that's longer than most marriages in America. That's that's longer than most mortgages in America. Yeah, it just seems true. like an eternity. You think there's opt out clauses in this? Like after a couple of years, you can back out. You may have to pay a fee to get out of it. But it, it would seem to me that signing any agreement that's that long would be full of risks. And I they have to have attorneys sitting at the table when they sign these things. What what's what are the what are the outs here? There there has to be, and I would say you're exactly right that there's a cost to getting out. But so I guess let's try to think. It says it says it is a what was the word they used? Undisclosed wind project. 
I'm curious who this right. owner is because in my mind, I'm thinking this is an asset owner that doesn't have any experience in O&M. This is a financial company. This is some kind of group that's like, hey, let's get mm. into wind. Let's let's do this. So they're just saying like, man, this is this is a way to do this without having to increase our uh, OPEX costs within our organization by hiring engineers and all these site people and all this kind of stuff. So they're they're yeah. going to say, let's let them do it. And uh, to be honest with you, I'm sure Rosemary, you've run into this in your in your with your uh, consulting company as well. Sometimes the financial people aren't as well-rounded in the wind industry. They might, Vestas might've put this in front of them 35 years. Mm -hmm. Yeah, this is what we do. And, and, and it's just not, to me, it's not a normal thing. Um, I would be afraid of it uh, just simply by the, the length of it. And if you don't like it, or if you don't have any experience with an FSA and cause a lot of times what we deal with day in and day out is asset owners fighting their FSA holders on something, one thing or the other, whether it's an inspection yeah. or who's at fault for this, or did you go and check this one after the lightning storm last week? Oh, we don't have to. Yeah, it says so in the contract. Oh yeah, we will. These kind of things, right? So there's always fights going on. So I, I'm thinking that this is someone that's fresh into wind uh, that doesn't have a whole lot of I experience. Think so or, or an asset too, and that's who the kinds of developers that you see making these agreements in Australia, which is most of them, they know that they don't have the the expertise in you know the technical mm -hmm. stuff, and so it, it, this kind of agreement feels very safe to them. Um, and it is on the the downside, yep. you know, they are really um, uh, being being cautious, and there's less chance that they're going to end up in ten years' time with an asset that is just broken down, doing nothing, and they don't have. Uh, you know, the right people to come and fix it or, you know, even just the certainty that it is fixable because, I mean, a normal right. wind turbine, things only have a couple of years warranty. And although if there's a serial defect, then you do still have recourse after that. It feels like, I, I know when you talk to people um, in part of the sales process, you talk to prospective buyers, um, they're like, how do I know that it's even going to work for more than two years? How can I put more than a two-year oh. lifetime into my, you know, my financial analysis spreadsheet and um, and be sure that I'm still going to have an asset making money in 10, 20, 30 years? Just because you say it does, you know, there's, there's <laughs> you say it's going to last 35 years, but um, you've got no skin in the game. And then this kind of service agreement means that they do have have skin in the game and um, so feel a lot better. Uh, about it at the start of the project and when they're you know focusing on developing as many projects as possible and it's not until they get to you know a bit further down the line and they see a lot of downtime or they just feel like oh you know okay technically it's available but it's not making as much energy as um as you said it would that's when they start to wonder whether that was the smart agreement and maybe they should have you know got some expertise into to help out with the operation rather than just leaving everything up to the, to the OEM. Well, back to Joel's point of if you're new to the industry, and you want to protect your downside. Does this also thinking about if you wanted to sell this wind farm in the future, does that provide added value? Is that to the new owner? Like it's like uh, if you bought a Ford and you had the, Ford, local Ford dealership fix your car all the time, that does add a little bit of value to it because there's records and everything's in order and it's all nice and neat. Same thing for airplanes. Airplanes have the same thing, right? So if you, you 
buy an airplane from Gulfstream and Gulfstream does all the repairs or a Gulfstream authorized dealer does all the repairs and adds value to your Gulfstream when you want to sell it. Is that same logic applied to wind farms? Um, Phil, was it Phil? And we had him on recently. Didn't he say that there is a perception that these OEM service agreements are the best way to go, but when you actually look at the data, that's not who's getting the best value out of their assets, uh, actually. And um, yeah, so the maintenance strategies of some of the so, some of the right. other providers are actually better when you look at the data. Am I recalling that right? Do you do you remember? No, you you are recording. Yeah, you yeah you're recalling that correctly. But the thing that Phil was adding to the equation was he was saying that the insurance companies were pushing operators to buy into these agreements because it would makes the insurance a little easier, obviously, because you have somebody knowledgeable repairing the turbine. So in the insurance industry case, you probably have less payouts on the insurance side. So maybe it's also an insurance play. So maybe it has two two benefits. It maybe lowers your mm-hmm. insurance premiums, smart, and maybe keeps the value of your asset higher, longer, to where you will f- flip this uh, to another energy-producing company at some point. Maybe that Maybe that's what's going on. Because 35 years just seems really long to me. Ping Monitor is a continuous blade monitoring system which allows wind farm operators to stay ahead of maintenance. Wind techs can often hear damaged blades from the ground, but they can't continuously monitor all the turbines. They also can't calculate how bad the damage is or how fast it's propagating based on sound. But Ping can. Ping's acoustic system is being used on over 600 turbines worldwide. It allows operators to discover damage before it gets expensive and prioritize maintenance needs across their fleet. And it pays for itself the first time it identifies serious damage or saves you from doing an unnecessary visual inspection. Stop flying blind out there. Get Ping's ears on your turbines. Learn more at pingmonitor.co. Interesting development from Vestas, and it tells you how much repairs and the, and the fees and the profits that are coming from the repair side. Vestas is taking their Blade Robots project. So if you're familiar with uh, Vestas, they actually have a, a sort of VC part, venture capital part of Vestas called Vestas Ventures. So Blade Robots is part of Vestas Ventures, and they're going to stand that Blade Robots up as an independent company. And Blade Robots is a what they describe it as an AI robot. I don't know if it's AI or not, but it it does leading edge repair. So it just kind of grabs on from the pictures I've seen. It grabs onto the blade and then grinds off whatever leading edge is on there and must put down some coating, as far as I can tell from the pictures. So the Blade Robots was started sometime in like 2020, as far as I could tell. In 20 uh, in last year, 2021, they're they're putting it through commercial testing, so that must have turned out well. Uh, and off we're off to the races. So now Vestas is creating standalone companies to um, basically compete in the aftermarket repair business. They have a second company as part of uh, Vestas Ventures, which is called Covento. And, and Joel, you may have seen this. It's a company that's like an eBay company for aftermarket parts. So repair parts. Yeah, like like and there's a couple of companies that are in that space. Yeah, kind of like Spares in Motion or uh, Dan Wynn does some of that yeah. as well. Okay. Yep. Yep. Very similar. So now Vestas is branching out into uh, probably one of the more profitable sides of the repair business, leading edge repair. And I'm just kind of wondering how, what the industry is going to think of that, right? I, I, 
if you made the if you made the blade that has a leading edge being damaged and then you get to do the repairs that seems like a nice little gig if you can if you can get it and just not do you think there's going to be some hesitancy to to choose maybe that's why they spun it off maybe that's why they spun it off because they felt like people wouldn't use it well i think it's the same thing as as um most of these OEMs, so Siemens, Camesa, Vestas, they all have service groups. Now, their service groups are, of course, uh, heavily dedicated to their full service agreements, but they also do multi-brand, right? I've been on projects before where Siemens right. is working on Nordex turbines and this kind of stuff. So I would say that Vestas, as a company that has some capital, saw the same writing on the wall as Aronis and, and um, our good friends at Rope Robotics, Robotics. And, and, and whoever else yeah. is developing these things and said, you know what, we've got some capital and a VC group internally. Why don't we develop one of these to help ourselves anyways? Uh, because they're seeing the same thing. We are a skilled worker, worker shortage across the globe um, as the global fleet of wind turbines increases and increases and increases. It's only going to get harder and harder and harder to find these people that are the special mix of a bit crazy to climb these turbines on on ropes and platforms mm. and and our skilled craftsmen in the in the uh, fiberglass and and whatnot and uh, and want to travel and all this. so those people are hard to find and they're only going to get more scarce so what's the solution True. robotics um, so I would say there's a there's a very good reason why they've done it uh, they've got some heavy hitters on the board right the ex MHI Vestas Offshore uh, CEO is going to be the board. Uh, chairman of the board, yeah. so you've got you've got some some horsepower there, and then um, I think also uh, Skagen's in in with these guys. Skagen owns actually a portion of one of our uh, our friends' uh, power curve, so Skagen's into some oh, some other stuff sure. as well. Yeah. Okay. So so uh, you have you've got some 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 pretty big Danish hitters on this thing, and yeah, uh, as I say, with Rope Robotics or Aronis or any of these guys are doing blade works, is that there's a the as I talk about being hard to find technicians, it's really hard to find people that are can deal with robotics and then also be a technician. So um, the, yeah. the the barrier to entry there for everybody in that game is um, how do you take this fantastic product that you've created in a lab with a bunch of engineers uh, and test it and then actually get it to scale in the field and do quality work. So we'll see what they come up with. Mm. Yeah, it's a difficult place and space for Vestas, I think. Not that they haven't been in the repair business, they have, mm -hmm. but leading edge repair is difficult, one. Mm -hmm. And two, it's just in a, you're running into all kinds of different situations with the blades when you get on site. It's a people business, really. Yep. And the, the engineering part and the robots are cool, but what yep. I'm learning just watching it from the outside is that the people are super important. If you have the right people on the ground, you can pretty much do anything, but getting those right people in place is hard to do. Mm -hmm. And I think the Aronis and the Rope Robotics of the world have already gotten that in place. Mm -hmm. So they've been out for a couple of years working in the field, doing a lot of blade repairs. Mm -hmm. They're going to have a leg up, wouldn't you think, at this point? Yeah, I mean, if you look at the, and I'm, I, don't, I don't know this for sure, but I'm looking at MHI Vestas, uh, Johnny Thompson being in there. He comes from the offshore world, yeah. so a lot of the, um, you know, of course, offshore North Sea, uh, there's a lot of leading edge issues, a lot of leading edge erosion out there on those offshore wind turbines. Right. Uh, I know a lot of yeah. a lot of the big campaigns that go on every year for everybody out there are leading edge protection, leading edge protection. Um, I mean, so Polytech was designed the shells for it out there, right? So there's 
mm-hmm. they may be chasing a little bit of a different market with him at the helm, being that I know Rope Robotics is mostly focused onshore. I think Aronis is mostly focused onshore because, of course, onshore. you have to get a blade onto a or a robot onto a blade. It's not it's not easy. Um, Taglines and all this stuff, right? So I'm sure there's ways around it, but sure. I would it, the, by the design here. Now I'm just looking at the some of the pictures. I know Rope Robotics works on a blade that's uh, at six o'clock in the bunny ears position, as, as right. we say in the industry. Yep. Uh, this blade looks like it's at like eight, you know, 10 degrees off of parallel to the ground. Um, it's close to parallel. Close right. To parallel. So that may give them a little bit of a different design advantage for working offshore because you might not need the tag lines and that kind of stuff. I don't know. I'm just thinking out loud here. I have so somebody's got to get that robot on the leading edge and it, it can't be light. Yeah. That's going to be tricky. I think yeah. there, there must be some technique to it clearly. Uh, and, and maybe you're right. And maybe that, maybe the emphasis is offshore wind and they realize that that's going to be the space where profitability is just going to be there. And the complexity is so high. It's going to take some like Festus yeah. to, to, to do it. Well, you go offshore wind, you go to these, these, these campaigns um, and they won't even have repairs in them. It'll just be leading edge, but the campaigns are millions of dollars because of the SOV costs and the CTV wow. costs and all the offshore costs and that kind of stuff and the amount of people you've got to have. So um, if they can, that's really the place where you can save yourself some money. So say Vestas has an FSA with someone offshore and they're on the hook mm-hmm. and they've scheduled, they, maybe they have a 20 year uh, FSA or who knows. And at year they signed it when they knew they were going to be on blades uh, and it was going to cost them a million dollars. Well, now if they can do that for 300 grand, they've just made a huge profit by switching to robots oh, yeah. on these things. So, yeah. so we'll see where, right. where they shoot, where they, uh, chase it. Rosemary, are you going to turn all of our maintenance over to robots? Definitely. Is that where we're I headed so. to a robot I, um, future? <laughs> I always love, love a technology that includes lasers and or robots. And we've had both in today's episode. So I'm, I'm pretty happy. <laughs> I can only hope that this. <laughs> I don't know who I'm talking to anymore. It's like talking to Elon's twin over there in Australia. What is going on down there? Without the, the crazy, crazy personality I, stuff. I keep thinking of you taking implants I, into I your brain. Only... I, I keep thinking like of Doctor Evil, uh, hey, exactly. The sh- sharks with laser like pointers on their heads. More if it included <laughs> yeah. a, a laser on it, then yeah, that would that would be the only way that you can improve it. <laughs> but I think uh, definitely we need to get these kind of things working offshore. That that's where they're really needed. You know, it's nice to save money and work faster onshore, but I mean. Offshore, I think it's it's only gonna work. It's only working now because everything is so so new. But you know, in a, it's expanding so quickly now. In a few years, I just feel like every second person is going to be need to be a wind turbine technician to keep up, um, unless we, you know, we get the automated stuff happening. Um, mm. That that's yeah. so. I think that's where it's it's all all good to go. And I'm sure you know anyone that's only onshore now. I bet that that's not all that they're thinking about. I'm sure that they're. <laughs> They're trying to figure out how can we how can we adapt this to offshore because that's surely going to be where the money is, um, you know, because it costs so much at the moment. Yeah. So um, even if it's an expensive automated solution, it could probably still be cheaper than um, a manned solution. So yeah, I'm sure that's where we're headed. Joel, am I wrong about this? I just needed to double check my numbers here, but I saw a number recently, and I don't think we talked about this in the podcast. Of the U.S. is going to need about 120,000 wind turbines by 2030. I saw that number too. I, I remember. I don't remember exactly That's what. That's a lot of leading edge. <laughs> yeah, 
Yeah, but I mean, yeah. they, I've also seen the number that says the IRA, the IRA bill is going to help us install another 100,000 turbines by 2030 on top of the 72 and change that we already have. I got a hard time. I I've had a hard time believing that. No, there's, that's possible. There's no way. But um, Right. Yeah, it's the lofty numbers well, out there. if you're flipping off a company... Right. Well, if you're flipping off a, a, a flipping off, I mean, if, if, if you're standing up a separate company that does blade repair and then you and you're looking for the total addressable market, what we call TAM, that TAM is huge. Yeah. Right. All of a sudden, because of that RA bill. And yeah. the, if we're going to do one hundred thousand to say one hundred thousand, that's three hundred. If I can do the math right, that's three hundred thousand blades. You'd have robots. You'd have hundreds of these robots in service all the time, just keeping your wind turbines going, especially if Vestas has signed all these AOM 5000 agreements, you'd have a lot of robots working a lot of hours. Pretty profitable business, it sounds like. That's going to do it for this week's Uptime Wind Energy Podcast. Thanks for listening. Please take a moment and give us a five-star rating on your podcast platform. And be sure to subscribe in the show notes below to Uptime Tech News, our weekly newsletter, as well as Rosemary's YouTube channel, Engineering with Rosie. And we'll see you next week on the Uptime Wind Energy Podcast.